Take your Bibles out, open to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2 today as we kind of make a major transition in the topic, uh, again tied to the theme of the book, which is Live Truth, as we study through this great book written by God through the Apostle Peter to us. There's always an outline. It'll help you this morning, uh, especially it'll help you this morning. If you want to pull it out and help you as you listen, I'd really encourage that. My name's Dale, and let's pray. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thanks for this book of Second Peter that we uh, can learn from, listen to. Uh, it's your voice to us. It's your divine truth to us. Uh, so Father, teach us so that we might understand truth, but also so that we may uh, learn to live truth in the midst of the world, in the midst of seeking to uh, be followers of Jesus Christ. It's not easy today. It's never been easy. So we ask you to teach us some more today about your word in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Okay, so I asked you a question a little bit ago that when you think about life and you think about sports as a metaphor, we're in the middle of the World Series, it's two and two, and let me just take a little survey real quick. How many uh, San Francisco fans are in the room? Okay, three, no, four, five, a few, okay, yeah. How about KC, how about Kansas City fans? Wow, Kansas City fans almost outnumber San Francisco fans. How many Padre fans? Woo! Okay, come on. You don't have to be in the World Series to be a fan. Angel fan over here, one, okay. Just a little shout out for Jordan's sake only, okay. Baseball, football, which is the better metaphor for life and why? Just a show of hands, how many of you would pick uh, baseball? Yeah. How many of you pick football? Yeah. I pick football. But the deeper question is why? Why? And it really relates to what we're going to study in just a few minutes. One of the things I love about the game of football, I played it, I played baseball till I was 12, and as soon as pitchers began to be able to throw a ball that would start at my head and curve into the strike zone, I said, this is a crazy game, I'm out of here. Uh, but football, I kind of gravitated to, and I enjoyed the game, played the game all through high school, never was good enough. I could have played in college if I was one of three things, faster, bigger, quicker, you know, <laughs> faster, bigger, meaner, probably. So I lacked on all three, so I didn't play in college, but uh, I, I really enjoy the game. And I enjoy the game today. Most of you know I'm a big college football fan. When I compare the two and I think about life, uh, baseball is pretty much, even though it's a team sport, most of the sport, there's no mystery to it. Pitcher takes ball. Pitcher has to throw the ball. He doesn't have a choice not to, unless he throws over to first base. So don't, don't wreck my metaphor, okay? I know no metaphor is perfect. Batter has a bat. Batter stands beside the plate. The ball's got to try to come across the plate. Batter, can he hit? I'm going to throw this thing as hard, fast, fancy, put some moves on it as I can. I throw the ball, you hit the ball. It's pretty much a one-on-one -on -one competition without a whole lot of mystery. 
and with very little of what you're about to see right now. Because when I think of college football, I want you to watch what I'm about to pop on the screen because it's a collection of what makes football different than baseball. Ready? Now, what do all those plays have in common? Answer? Okay, you can clap for that if you want to. Yeah, okay. Now, would you ever see something like that in baseball? You know, I mean, I know there's a few uh, uses of trickery in baseball. You know, sometimes you steal a base or you try to steal home. But, you know, maybe you look like you're going to hit and you bunt. That's about as far as it goes. But football is a game that is played based on deception. Those were blatant examples of it by the offense. But the reality is the defense does it too. They always line up trying to disguise the truth about what they really are doing. And the better they can disguise what's really going to happen, the better they can really lie to the other team. And that's all legal in the game. The better you can deceive and lie and and communicate one thing but then do something very different often is the difference between a winner and a loser. It's not just the most powerful team that wins. It's often the one that's the most deceptive. Now, in sports, that's just kind of fun. In fact, as you experience there, it can be downright entertaining. But in life, you don't want that. Living life in a world that specializes in deception is not only... It's not only dangerous, it's your reality. The scriptures put it this way. When Jesus talked about the importance of truth, it's, it's, no, it's no surprise that in John chapter 8, Jesus says, and the truth shall set you free. We've been studying in Second Peter the idea that walking in truth, living truth is basic to life. In fact, in 3 John, we introduce this fall season with a passage where, where uh, John writes to this church and he says, I have no greater joy than to f- find my children walking in the truth. So if walking in truth, living truth, knowing truth, knowing the truth of the gospel and of Jesus and the truth about God is really the foundation for life as God designed it to be, then it should be no surprise to us that the evil one is described this way. John 8, 14. Look at it on the screen. 
Jesus said this. He says, you, referring to actually a bunch of not uh, cultists or peoples of, of other religions, but speaking to the religious leaders of his day that did not buy into him, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. There is no truth in him. For he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. Should be no surprise that in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, when Romans describes the downfall of not only a person's life, but entire cultures, it describes it this way. It says, for at the root of the problem, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1.25. You see, at the center of life is the battle for truth. The struggle to know the truth, live the truth. Know the truth about who you are now as a child of God if you've placed your faith in Christ. And what God says is true of you. It's called your identity in Jesus Christ. Knowing the truth of His grace. Knowing the truth about how God's love is unconditional. Knowing the truth about who Jesus was and what He did and the impact that has in our life. Knowing the truth about how to have great relationships every day and knowing the truth about what love really is and what love does and how to, how to apply that to things like parenting and marriage and relationships and friendships and you know all of it needs truth so it's no surprise that the enemy's number one strategy is to counter truth with deception so the question for today is this we've been studying for four yes five weeks counting last week's q a for five weeks the importance of knowing truth applying truth understanding that the truth is found in God's word and then living it out. So today we move to the question of truth about lies. Chapter 2 begins with the word but. In other words, it's going to contrast chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about truth, but this is the fact or the truth of the world in which we live. He picks it up. Listen to the word of God, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets arose and with that we're going to this week and next week really study the truth about untruth the truth about lies the truth about living in a culture with a spiritual enemy that actually wants to deceive you as a strategy for winning the game he's trying to win and it's a serious game so here we go pick it up verse one in the outline it really breaks into three big ideas uh, number one, beware, because beware of the fact that false prophets and false teachers exist in the world today. They always have and they always will. So be aware that they abound. And then secondly, we'll move on to be wise, because to spot them, you need to understand and see their MO, their modus operandi, how they tend to to hook you and deceive you. So understanding how they, how they um, operate will help us be wise as we beware. And then finally, we're going to talk directly about our culture because there were certain deceptions that were very common in the first century church. There are some different deceptions, I think, that have crept into the church that are very common today. They have a lot in common, but they are different. So I want to talk to you about today and the world that you and I have to live in. So first, beware false prophets and teachers abound it's one verse that's really rich so let me read it reflect but false prophets also arose among the people 
just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master, referring to Jesus, who bought them. And the word bought is the word redeemed, who redeemed them, who paid the price for their sin. By the way, this is one reason why I believe personally that Christ's death on the cross covered the sin of the whole world, both believers and unbelievers, and and those that may never believe. In this case, even these heretics that uh, that are going to be condemned. So, you know, even the one, Jesus, who redeemed them, who paid the price for their sin on the cross, it says, Jesus says that they even deny him, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow after them. We'll come into that in just a minute. Let's break down verse 1 first, because it's a verse that basically is, is designed to kind of wake us up to the presence of false teaching. He says there are four things that are true of them. And I'll just pop them for you out of the text, okay? But they really line up with a lot of what Jesus said. When Jesus spoke about false teachers, he referred to them as, as, with a metaphor, as something uh, among the sheep. Do you remember with the metaphor? What is it? As wolves. But not just wolves that kind of come in and say, woohoo, you know, with a big wolf howl as they approach the sheep. He talks about wolves in what? In sheep's clothing. So wolves that disguise themselves to look and sound, and they learn to do a little baha, everyone, you know, and they disguise themselves to sneak. Can I do it? I need a better. Anybody give me a sheep sound. One, two, three. That's much better. I, I struggle with that one. Okay. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, so they have that little baha, you know, that's better. So, so somebody, he says the wolves that come into the, into the flock, they, they come into the sheep disguising themselves as sheep. And it really lines up with this language in Peter. Because here are the four phrases. He says, they are among us. They're not just outside of us. They're actually among us. So this type teaching slips into the church. Secondly, it is secretive. They are more covert than overt. And they often hide their heresy uh, so that you don't notice it. Now, how, did, how does a wolf dress in sheep's clothing? Let me, let me tell you how I think it operates. Two things. I think in today's world, it's very typical of false teachers. Number one, they do it by, don't, they, they do it by taking uh, a little bit of truth and then mixing their heresy with it. So heresies almost always are disguised by partial truth. So you shouldn't expect a, uh, a false teacher that's like a wolf in sheep's clothing among you secretively introducing destructive, that's the third phrase, destructive heresies. They don't come in saying, hey, guess what? I think everything you've been taught is wrong. Instead, here's what I believe, and it's nowhere close to what Jesus taught. They don't say that. In fact, they claim allegiance to Christ. They claim allegiance to the, to the church. They, they disguise themselves. So they come kind of mixing truth with error. The second thing they do is they often come uh, knowing that the scriptures say that what is the lead thing Jesus said would identify his followers. He says, they shall know we are Christians by our, by our love, by the way we love one another. I think one of the deceptions of the enemy is most cults, most false teachers, most false movements disguise themselves with a loving environment they often emphasize family they often emphasize relationships they often emphasize and live out a lot of very good positive loving gestures toward the community so they're often a very loving environment in which you mix a dangerous concoction of 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 a lot of truth with just a little error that takes it 
off base. And that's how they deceive. And it's kind of like those football plays. You know, none of those teams that pulled off those trick plays came up and said, hey, just so you guys know over there, you don't know which one, but this one's going to be a trick play. Okay, they didn't say that, did they? You know, they come out, they line up for a field goal. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, I love that one. You know, the, the, you know so, you know, the, the, uh, the, the holder, you know, catches, you know, catches the ball and instead of holding it, flips it over his shoulder, you know, to the, to the kicker, boom, touchdown. You know, or, you know, or the guy, I love the one where the guy walks up and, and just hikes the ball to himself and stands there and then takes off with it, you know. You know, they don't say, here's a trick play, see if you like it. So you need to understand that false teachers and false teaching that can be even destructive, even deadly, um, is, is very much like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Fourth character trait is it almost always attacks something about Jesus. It says they deny the master who bought them. The very one that paid the price for their sins. And it says they deny him. And it's often a denial of one of two things. You should write this down and remember this. It's either his person or his work. In his person, it's usually denying one part of the nature of Jesus. We believe Scripture clearly teaches Jesus was the God-man. He was fully God who came to earth and took on human flesh. He was 100% man, 100% God uh, in this mysterious uh, incarnation or coming of Christ. Down through history, different groups, different cults will deny one or the other. In the first century, they actually were a little quicker to recognize his deity. They were a little quicker to say, yeah, he must have been God. I mean, they saw the miracles. They saw the resurrection, etc. But they would say, but, but you know, especially uh, there was a movement within the early church that said, but, you know, but if he's really God, then he can't really participate in human flesh because we know that we're all sinful. And, and so that they would deny his, his humanity. Uh, more recently, I think most of our culture d- will affirm his humanity and say he was a great man, but they deny his deity. And then there are many cults and groups in between that will say, well, he, he was fully human, but, but, then he, but then he became God. So he, they will often say he's the son of God, but he's not God the son. So there's a lot of subtle ways in which they attack the nature of Christ. Beware of that. The second thing they do is they, they, they attack the work of Christ. In other words, they begin to say, yeah, okay, you know, we are saved by the work of Jesus on the cross, the grace of God, but then we have to add something to that to get into heaven. It's kind of like they treat the work of Jesus as getting you on the ladder, but then you've got to climb the ladder to make it to heaven. And it's very common in a lot of movements, churches, etc. So understand that those are not true. Understand, and I've given you, for the sake of time today, I've actually given you a little brief uh, theological uh, cheat sheet, okay? So on the bottom of the outline in that box, uh, I, I identify what I think at least are the five or six major areas that you need to be grounded in the truth of your theology in order to recognize counterfeits when they come. So you may want to take that this week, read it over, look up the verses, and begin to to be more aware of what these issues are. Now, one reason I do that is because this. If you say, okay, Dale, in light of this, what's the number one action step you'd recommend for us? And it's this, know truth well. We've got to know truth well enough that we spot lies, okay? So when you know the truth well enough to spot the lies 
then you're prepared to deal with counterfeits. You want to bring that up, Robin, if we have that? Know the truth well enough to spot the lies. Let me tell you a story that goes with this. Um, I uh, had a chance to meet a guy one time that works for the, um, what's the federal agency that prints the money? Help me. Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, the Federal Reserve. And, and his job working for the Federal Reserve, and, and, and his specialty is helping train uh, bankers and those in the banking industry how to spot counterfeit bills. And, and he told me, he said, Dale, guess what? He says, they do it just the opposite of the way you would think they would do it. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well, how do you think they would do it? And I bit right into it. I said, you know, I think that they would probably collect some really, really good counterfeit bills and they would uh, put them in a room and, and show them all these counterfeits that have, that have come through the system so that they recognize the counterfeits. And he said, well, they, they do a little bit of that, but that's not really the secret. He says, they put them in a room with just a lot of real money. And all they do all day is handle real money. Handle real money. They touch it, they look at it, they feel it, they pass it on, they get another one. And he said they just do that day after day after day. And that's how they train them. And he says, if you handle the real money long enough, all of a sudden the counterfeit just pops up. And something helps you recognize it right away. Because you know it's not the real thing. Because you know the real thing so well. So that's why it's so important to really ground yourself in truth. Not just to have a Sunday morning experience with truth, but to be in the Word of God. Really into it, knowing it, loving it, and recognizing it enough that when something is a little bit askew, you recognize it uh, right away. So beware, false teachers have always been around the church. They are today, and um, be aware of the danger. Number two, let's go on. Be wise. Now verses 2 through 10, really the rest of our passage uh, introduce some wisdom because it basically talks about the uh, what I call the MO. What is the modus operandi? How do false teachers operate? Especially it brings out two things. What is their appeal to us? And what is the hidden motive, especially for them? So what is their appeal? What is their motive? Now the appeal is in verse 2. It says, many will follow them. Now why? Many will follow their sensuality, their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. So pull up right there. He says their appeal is to um, uh, what is sensual uh, more than what is sensible. Their appeal often is not to call out truth and confront it with their their views. Uh, instead, it's they, they have some aspect to, their, to what they're teaching that appeals to our flesh, not just to our mind. It's interesting, when you look up this word uh, in the Greek language, the word for sensual, uh, it means a variety of things, but the different translations translate it things like uh, lustful pleasure, shameful ways, debauched lifestyles, sexual freedom, shameful shameful immorality it is it is a word that typically applies especially to the area of our sexuality you know and what i think what it begins to unveil is a lot of the opponents of christianity um, attract their following not by offering something that is more intellectually viable but something that is more appealing to our flesh um 
I read a book um, which I highly recommend to every follower of Christ, especially if you have students going off to college. Um, it's a book called uh, How, now, How Now Shall We Live by Charles Colson and Nancy Piercy. Um, and in the book, uh, they deal with this idea of the Christian worldview and does it intellectually hold, hold water? Does it make sense? And does it make more sense in explaining the real world that we see than the worldviews of other religions or of naturalistic uh, humanism and, and, and the thinking of our culture? And he builds a really good case for the Christian worldview. But in it, he gets into this topic of the appeal. What is it that appeals to people um, that reject our faith? And Philip Johnson, who is a law professor at Berkeley, uh, he's a guy that deals with a level of brain power that I would only dream about, okay? But Philip Johnson writes this because he's often on the forefront as a Christian who is a legal expert and somewhat of a genius. He's often involved in debates with non-Christians around the Christian worldview and especially uh, the Christian view that in whatever form you want to take it, we have a creator God who created the universe, and the in the beginning God created is a legitimate thing for your belief system versus naturalistic evolution and the evidence that no, there was no activity of any creator, but the whole thing just evolved. And here's what Johnson writes. I want to show you the quote. It's so well written. He says this. He says, I have found that in any discussion with modernists about the weaknesses of the theory of evolution that those discussions quickly turn into a discussion of politics, particularly sexual politics. Why? Well, it's because modernists typically fear that any discrediting of naturalistic evolution will end up with women sent to the kitchen, gays to the closet, and abortionists to jail. It's a powerful quote. And that's just his observation as he interacts with the world. Now, you know... We don't believe our faith justifies the mistreatment of, of anyone. But what he's highlighting there is don't miss his main point. His main point is this, that when you look behind the scenes, that they, people understand in our culture that as soon as you agree with the starting point of your worldview being, in the beginning, God created everything and you that you have a personal God who is your creator. As soon as you acknowledge that single truth, then, then there are some consequences that flow out of that. There's some, well, if that God exists and he created me, then someday I'm going to have to stand before him and how's he going to think of me and, and what does he say about life and, and what, you know, is he knowable and has he revealed himself and if so, where and are any of the religions of the world correct and if so, how do I sort that out? And, you know, all these questions flow out of that. And, and, and the biggest thing is the fear that, okay, if the biblical God is true, then what the scriptures say about other things about our lives, especially things where we want our freedom. We want to be able to live life however we want to live it with no consequence after this life. Uh, that's a scary thought. So one way is to just remove God from the formula of life. And to do that, you've got to come up with some way in which you came to exist 
and everything came to exist. So he, you know, I think what Philip Johnson is calling out is the fact that underneath um, a lot of false teaching is an appeal to offer us what we want in life. Follow me and you can do whatever you want to do. Follow me and you can define God however you want to define him. Follow me and you'll have more freedom to live the way you want to live, do what you want to do without consequences. And that's the, I think that's exactly what Peter is talking about when he warns us that they, many follow them because of their appeal to the area of the flesh, not just the mind. Is this warned elsewhere in Hebrew, in the scriptures? Yes, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says this, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So be careful lest you develop an unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the sensibility of sin. Is that what it says? By the what? deceitfulness of sin see sin not only appeals to my flesh it affects my mind i will alter how i think to justify how i want to live is basically what he's saying so just be aware of that it's what makes false teaching appealing be careful when you're drawn to uh, part of your belief system that that well if, if i believe that then it takes away the tension between how I live and what I believe. Number two, what's their motives? And we'll cover this more quickly in verse three. I want to focus mainly on the first three verses today. He says this in verse three, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Two things in this one verse, verse three. Their motive is rooted in greed. What's in it for me? I think they appeal to your greed but also it says, it seems to imply in the text that they get something out of this. It's not uncommon for the founders of new uh, movements, for the founders of new cults, the gurus of this or that, to amass extreme wealth from their followers. When a religion is based on earning points to get into heaven, for example, it can be used to manipulate the followers for greedy purposes. I just saw one example of this, um, and, and this example comes out of my experience with Islam, for example, where uh, it's very much a works-based religion, where it's your performance on the earth, how you live, what you do, either earns your entry into heaven or not. So it's very much a works-based thing. So I'm in, uh, I'm in a North African country, uh, Morocco actually, uh, visiting, uh, we went on a tour of a mosque uh, just outside of, of the city. It's the third largest mosque in the world. Uh, beautifully uh, done, ornate, gold, granite, marble, everywhere you can see. And the guide was very, very open when we, when we said, wow, this couldn't have been cheap to build. I mean, how in the world did, did you come up with the ability to build this uh, you know, at a time when your, your economy and your nation is really in, 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 tight, in a tight fix economically? And, and he said, well, actually, this wasn't built with 
uh, our tax dollars or anything like that. He says this was built as a gift. It was built as a gift from a very wealthy king in another nation. And so, so why would he build the third largest mosque in the world over in Morocco? And he said, well, he built it that way. He, he gave the funds to build this because uh, we believe, he said, speaking for his faith, he says, we believe that when someone builds something for God, that every prayer offered in that place earns credit to that person that built it. Now think about that, where you can live a life and do whatever you want to do somewhat, and, but then know that you have the prayers of the third largest mosque in the world being offered up, and every time anybody goes there and bows down and prays, you're earning points with God. Now that frees up the dollars pretty quick. You know, and I think it's this way, we could give other examples. There are examples within Christianity in which in which the faith is abused for greedy purposes. So before you write me the email and say, Dale, what are you picking on Islam for? My point is this. When it involves false teachers, be wary and be, be, uh, be on the alert when there appears to be a greed-based uh, relationship with the thing. Their motive often appeals to your flesh. Their greed often appeals to your pocketbook. Number three, but their end is spelled out clearly. And this is really verses, uh, it begins in verse three and flows from verses four to 10. Verse three, it says this, but their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. What's that saying? It's kind of a metaphorical way of saying God is not sleeping on this thing and they will face judgment someday for what they do. That these false teachers who deny Jesus Christ, deny him, who do not follow Christ, or they deny the essence of who he is, what he does, uh, he says that they will face judgment. They will someday face judgment. And then verses 4 to 10 really kind of spells out that judgment. And here it is without even reading it. He says, just as sure as God judged the rebellious angels and cast them into hell, that's when God judged the angels that rebelled against him and they became what we today call what? demons we'll talk about that in another sermon perhaps in verse 4 in verse 5 he says just as god judged the ancient world for its sin with the flood verse 6 just as god judged sodom and gomorrah and with for their for their sins in verse 6 you know yet in all of these verse 7 to 10 god always rescues his people in the midst of it so what do we take away from this their end is certain judgment but what I want to do is take the last five minutes or so to, to talk a little bit about, so what are some of the false gods, lies, and deceptions of the 21st century? And especially, I wanted to look a little more and not focus on other religions and other cults, but I want to focus on what I think are some of the more subtle um, uh, wolves in sheep clothing that are right in our midst. I think they're so common in the American church I hope they're not common here. I know that we try to teach against these things, but I think they're so common in the Christian community, in the U.S. even especially, that we need to be aware of these. And here they are. Here's my top four. And they all are common lies uh, that sound good, appeal to our pleasures or greed, but can be deadly. And they're lies about God. So here's four views of God, and you can 
this week reflect on these, especially as you are involved in your life group or you meet with someone that's mentoring you. Uh, take some time, do the uh, encounters with God, uh, and especially ask this question, where do you see these four gods? Number one, uh, custom God, uh, created and always evolving. It's an outgrowth of what I call liberal theology. Um, custom God is a view that says, well, even if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus, when it comes to fine-tuning your belief, you decide what God is like. You decide and pick and choose somewhat what you like about your faith and what you don't. Uh, you kind of customize your view of God. It's kind of like one man said, in the beginning it says that God created mankind in his image, and now today mankind is paying him back. Mankind is recreating God in the image that we want God to be. So we're telling God what he's like. We're picking and choosing what we want to believe. Uh, under this view, the Bible is a human-inspired book, but not a divine inspiration, not a divine revelation of God. So be weary of it. One liberal theologian that I read said this, the Bible, in his definition, is man's best effort to understand God. He, think it's, he thinks it's the best shot man's ever taken at trying to understand God, but still not God's revelation. Do you ever get tempted, or do you know people that, under the banner of Christian, even, really are making God the way they want Him to be? It's dangerous. Number two, Second one is God is only love. Outgrowth of this would be the theology called universalism, that God pretty much is only love and that all roads lead to heaven. Uh, it's, it's a view that emphasizes the love of God pretty much to the exclusion of the issue of man's sin and God's judgment and, 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 and the need for forgiveness and the need for the work of Christ and, and, and the uniqueness when Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Uh, they would reject that because they'd say, yeah, you know, that's probably something Jesus never said. You know, and, and they, they kind of believe part of the Scriptures but not all of it. And so it's, it's very dangerous. And the emphasis is all about God being love, period. I would say if there's a bumper sticker that typifies this movement, it's this one. You ever see that before? Now, in what way is that a mixture of truth and error? See, I think to some degree, I would agree with the message of that bumper sticker. I think, as you understand, Jesus walked among people of other faiths, and the Apostle Paul walked among people of other faiths, and, and he, would, he would say, hey, love your enemies, uh, be kind and respectful to those that disagree with you, um, you, know, you know, engage them with love and tell them about the truth. So, you know, speak the truth, but speak it in love. And, and certainly, Jesus would never endorse some of the atrocities that have happened as religion goes against religion in our world. So in that sense, I think, yeah, I kind of like that. But yet, the reality is what's behind this bumper sticker is more often a theology of universalism. It, it's, it's meant to say, you know something, um, you should coexist because... All religions are equal and true. And it kind of shuts down the intellectual pursuit of truth. So I think, yeah, coexist, but I would like to add underneath it and seek real truth. 
You know, let's have a debate. Let's talk honestly amongst ourselves as to why we believe what we believe and what's unique about Jesus Christ. And, you know, so it's, it's show love for everyone, yes. Simply declare everything true, no. That's one of the most subtle uh, mistakes of our culture today. Number three, so if you have that bumper sticker, uh, just write underneath it, but seek truth, and that's okay. But, but I love you. Here we go. Number three, um, God is, I'm here for you. And according to a study that's been done more recently, they kind of define this in a long term. They, they see it, the average young adult Christian, this is based on a study, uh, a national study done about five years ago, but I think still the most recent thorough study of youth in America. And, and, and the study done by some uh, professors at the University of North Carolina um, studied the religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs of teenagers at that time, which are now our young adults. And what they came up with is they said it's best summarized that they really, those who profess to be Christians, when you listen to what they really believe, he says they're more moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, let me break that down. And I like to make it really simple. And the book, by the way, if you want to read the book that, that takes apart this study, it's called Soul Searching, The Religious Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Good book to read. Here's, here's what it breaks down, though. I call it the five commandments of moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD for short, okay? Here's the five commandments. Number one, be good. That's the moralism. That God just wants you to try to be good. And, and everyone agrees with that. Be good, be nice. Number two, be happy. That really God loves me and therefore wants me to be happy. So whatever makes me happy is okay. So there's a real emphasis on God wanting our happiness more than anything else. So be good, uh, be happy. Number three, be free. Then this is where the deism begins to leak in. Deism uh, is best described as God created the universe but now he sits in a rocking chair up in heaven and he's just kind of watching things play out. In other words, God really doesn't care about getting involved in the details of your life or my life. He's kind of sitting in the rocking chair until maybe someday he puts an end to things. But for right now, God's kind of in retirement, enjoying watching his creation just kind of happen. Okay? So be good, be happy. Uh, grant freedom and be free. Respect each other. Give freedom to everybody. And number four, uh, call me if you need me. That's the therapy part. That's the therapeutic part. In other words, God is there for me. So when I'm hurting, when I go through a national crisis, then my politicians say, let's all have a national day of prayer, okay? Uh, or let's do this or that. Or I will pray when I need God. But God's okay with that in this theology because God kind of just kind of wants me to be good and be happy, and as long as I'm being good, being happy, being free, God's cool with everything else. And if I need God, I call and he comes running. I'll be there is his favorite song. Okay, number five, and see you in heaven. This theology believes that pretty much everyone who at least tries to be good, be happy, will end up in heaven. I think this is the most dangerous deception of our day and i think it's rampant in the american church and it's probably in a very subtle way rampant in our lives if we're not careful 
we don't watch out and make sure that we live truth. The last one is God as church. What I would call churchianity versus Christianity. It's where I have doctrine without discipleship. I have rituals without relationship. I have head knowledge without my heart involved in loving my God and my Christ. I do good works without grace. In other words, I'm doing church. I'm doing church and calling it Christianity. When I haven't engaged to really say, I am a full-on follower, disciple of Jesus. And that's very different than just saying, I do church. Where I realize I need a relationship with the God who gave his son for me and died on the cross for me and loves me. And, and I, I need to, to, my heart matters to God um, as much as my head, even more. God is looking at my heart. Do I love him and out of love want to obey him? So it's, I'm responding to his love, responding to his grace, and uh, not just doing works without it. I think these last two are the most subtle inside the church heresies of our day. If I love you, which I do, then I've got to call these out and say, take this week to get before the Lord and say, Lord, what elements of this and go back one slide, Robin, to that other. What elements of doing God as church or what elements of this therapeutic deism, God is here to just make me happy and help me be good, am I buying into? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for how it warns us to live with an awareness, with an awareness every day of the dangers of our culture, the dangers of false teaching. But Father, as we pause for a second, um, I want to give people a second just to sit in quiet and say, Lord, um, help me to know truth well enough that I spot the deception. Did you pray that? So let me be a student of your word Help me to interact with my other friends who are followers of Christ and to be grounded in truth so that I am insulated from catching the diseased forms of the faith that surround us today. And if you've never done so, make today the day that you say, Lord Jesus, uh, I've been doing church, but today I want to choose you. I choose you, Jesus, as my Savior, as my Lord, as my Creator, and I submit my life to you in response to trusting in your grace, trusting in the fact that you died for me, and that you're alive. Wow, thank you. Did you pray that? We thank you in Christ's name. And Father, we give to you, again, not just to do church, but we give because we absolutely adore you. In Christ's name, amen.